Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. You honor us by listening in, and we're grateful for you. Um, Before we begin, I just want to encourage you to not let this podcast replace the local church in your life. God has designed it so that we are to join a local church and serve that body of believers and be shepherded by the pastor of that church. And that's something no podcast can give you. And so if you're not involved in a local church, let me encourage you to find one as soon as possible. Enjoy our podcast. Open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 18. Um, 1 Kings 18, um, if you remember several weeks ago, we were in a sermon series on the life of Elijah. Um, And I actually told you when this quarantine started that I was going to take a break from Elijah until this, until we were back meeting together and start back in Elijah then. Um, Unfortunately, at the time, I thought this was only going to be a couple weeks. Um, And so that's why I said that. Um, But as we don't know when this is going to end and when we're going to get to be in church again, I'm going to go ahead and start back in Elijah um, because I actually want to finish Elijah so that when we are back together, um, I can start a different sermon series through another book of the Bible that I'm very excited about. It's not something I was planning to preach this year. Uh, well, I was going to start it the last couple weeks of the, of the year in December, um, but I'm going to go ahead and start it once we're back together. Um, and so I'll tell you what that is when we are back together. Um, but something I'm really excited to preach um, so we are back in the story of Elijah. We've had four sermons in this series thus far. Um, we looked at Elijah um, per, saying that it would not rain in the land of Israel um, there because they were worshiping Baal. Baal was the rain god. And so he came and said, it's not going to rain by the word of the Lord. We saw him get taken care of. Um, by the Lord at the, at the river. Um, he provided him water. He provided food from birds. Um, we saw him um, begin to stay with a widow and her son. And um, we saw him um, provide bread for them. We saw him raise the son to life after the son died. And all this took place over three and a half years. And then the Lord told Elijah to go back to Israel and confront Ahab. So he went back. He ran into Obadiah as he was going into Israel. And he told Obadiah to go get Ahab and bring him back. And the showdown was going to happen. And that's where we left off on March 22nd. Um, And so now we pick up there today. Obadiah has gone to get Ahab, has brought him back. And that's where we pick up. Would you consider yourself to be an idol worshiper? You probably don't. You, you probably don't. It's probably not something you think of yourself. Because honestly, we, we associate idol worship with other religions. You know, we associate it with um, statues of Buddha or the, um, or the Kaaba in Islam or, um, or the pagan religions of the Bible. When I think of idol worship, I think of the time I had to go to a Hindu temple. Um, I was a religious studies student in college. Um, And as part of the religious studies degree, you had to take three classes on world religions. So there's about six or seven major world religions. You had to take a class on three of them. So I took one on Christianity, I took one on Hinduism, and I took one on Taoism. Um, Taoism is a Chinese religion. I probably would have taken Islam as my third um, course, as I'm going to more likely run into a Muslim here in America than, than a Taoist. 
uh, but just schedule didn't work out. I had to complete my courses to graduate, and so I had to take Taoism because that was the only thing available. Um, but when I took Hinduism, um, one of the assignments was that I had to go down to Nashville, Tennessee. Nashville was only about 30 minutes south of where I went to college. I had to go down to Nashville, Tennessee to a Hindu temple, and I just had to observe, and I had to see what went on there, and then I had to write a paper on that. That was something the professor assigned. And so me and a couple other guys who were friends um, in the religious studies department, we, we went down one day. We went to the Hindu temple. Um, it was not during a, a, a worship service. It was just the Hindu temples are open all day, so they have their times where they come together for worship, but then they have other times that people can come and just offer sacrifices and offer offerings to the gods. Um, and so I went in, and they took us up this really big staircase um, up into the next floor up. And there were statues there um, of all the different gods, and at the feet of those gods were, were money, were pictures of family members, were fruit and vegetables, um, all kinds of different things that people had offered to those idols. They were there. And um, I saw people there. They would walk up and they would bring these offerings and they would lay them at the feet. They would ring bells. They would pray. They would chant. They were worshiping statues. That's what I think of when I think of idol worship, and that's probably something like what you think of. Um, be, because that's not us, because none of us have a statue of an elephant in our house that we bow down to regularly, we, we would say we're not an idol worshiper. We would think, I don't break the second commandment. You shall not make a graven image. Let me, let me put it to you in another way. Because there have been many times in my life when I've worshipped idols. Um, and none of them look like an elephant. None of them were a god of another religion. Um, probably the biggest moment in my life of this, and you know I love you when I'm willing to share this, this embarrassing fact with you. Um, so, so when I was um, growing up, I was a superhero fan. You know that. I'm, I'm still a superhero fan today. I love all things superheroes. But when I was a kid, it was a big deal for me, like really big. I was, um, for Halloween, my first grade year, I was Batman. And then I was Superman every year after that for the rest of the time that I trick-or-treated. Um, so, so I loved superheroes. What happened was that I became, um, I began to see superheroes as a role model, um, Superman specifically. Not the guy that flies around in the tights, but um, when I was a kid, there was a TV show on called Smallville. Um, maybe you watched it, maybe you didn't. It was on the air from 2001 to 2011. It's 10 seasons long. It followed Clark Kent before he became Superman. So the first episode, he's a freshman in high school, and, and he um, goes through high school and goes through college, and he um, eventually starts working at the Daily Planet, and he fights a bunch of the bad guys that Superman has. Um, he becomes enemies with Lex Luthor. He meets Lois Lane and falls in love. And then the final episode, he finally becomes Superman. Spoiler alert. The final episode, he finally puts on the red and blue tights and flies around. Um, it took 10 seasons to get there. I that he was my role model, Clark Kent in that TV show. I saw him as a role model. 
to the point that I wanted to be just like him. I wanted to talk like him. I wanted to act like him. I wanted to make sure my hair always looked like him. Like it got really bad to the point that I even started to dress like him. Clark, Clark Kent wore jeans and, and boots and flannel, which I still wear a lot today. That's kind of a, a major style of mine. But it was to the point back then, I would do the research on the internet and find out the clothes, that the exact shirts that Clark Kent wears on Smallville, and I would track those shirts down on eBay and purchase them so that I could wear them. The exact plaid designs. Even to the point that Clark Kent in the TV show, the way they made him look like Superman before he was Superman is that um, he would wear a blue t-shirt, plain blue t-shirt, and a red work jacket, something like a Carhartt jacket that was bright red. Well, I'm not the only person in the world who was obsessed like this. Other people have, had contacted um, tailors on the internet and, and sent them pictures of this jacket and said, make me this jacket exactly. I found those people and I ordered one of those jackets. And I mean, majorly when I was young, in my high school and even college days, um, a couple times a week, I would be wearing a blue t-shirt and that red jacket. And there came a point at, at a certain point in my life when um, I, I, was, I, I was confronted with, with how much of an idol I had made Clark Kent, how much of a worshiper I was of, of Superman, how much of my identity was tied to Superman. And I, I was hit face front with it. I was hit like a ton of bricks with the fact that that's what I was doing, and I threw it all down. I got rid of the red jacket. I got rid of the of most of the plaid shirts. I still have a couple of them, but um, I, I got rid of them. I stopped worrying about being Clark Kent. I threw all that aside and I ran from it because it had become the idol that I was worshiping. I hope you see that it doesn't have to be a religion for you to, to be an idol worshiper. It doesn't have to be a pagan god. It can be a lot of things. An idol is anything you give first place of your heart to over, over the Lord. You have a throne in your heart, and something or someone will sit on that throne. What is it that's there? Let's read the story. We're going to finish out chapter 18. I'm going to read it in three parts because it's a, it's a long portion. So Elijah has come to Ahab. Ahab's come to Elijah, and they're going to have a showdown between their gods. God versus Baal. Verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel, and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. The people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. 
Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces, lay it on the wood, and put no fire on it. And I will prepare the other bull, lay it on the wood, and put no fire on it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, It is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made, and at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is God. Either he is musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as a midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. It has not rained for three and a half years. Bad press for the rain god. And Elijah comes. There's a famine in the land. Worship of Baal is throughout the land. But despite the worship of the rain god, there is no rain. And Elijah shows up and confronts Ahab. And what does Ahab say? Hey, look, it's the troubler of Israel. But understand, that's Ahab, that's not Elijah. Ahab's the troubler of Israel. It's not the one who brings the truth who is the troubler. It's the person who creates the situation where the truth is needed. That's the troubler. So they're going to have a showdown. They're going to gather at Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel is a place of lush vegetation. It's where God's altar from Israel was. Ahab had torn it down. Baal was served there now. It is at the border of Israel and Phoenicia. And it's going to be 850 prophets versus Elijah. 450 of Baal, 400 of Asherah versus Elijah. Elijah's going to stare down 850 people. Like, think about it. That's about six times the amount of people who normally gather in this sanctuary to worship. You take our church, multiply it by six, and Elijah, one man, is going to stand and stare all of them down. We've been building to this moment, this entire series of Elijah. Uh, they're going to have this showdown. So Elijah gathers them all together at Mount Carmel, and he looks at the people of Israel, and he says, How long will you go limping between two opinions? He says, get off the fence. You, you look pathetic limping around. You cannot worship the Lord and worship Baal. You cannot worship the Lord and worship Asherah. Jesus would say it differently. He would say, you cannot serve God and money. Uh, Joshua stands before the people of Israel and he says, choose today who you will serve. You can serve that God or that God or that God or that one, but me and my house are going to serve the Lord. Make your decision. There's going to be a showdown. Elijah says, those prophets are going to get a bull. They're going to prepare the sacrifice. I'm going to get a bull. I'm going to prepare the sacrifice. And we're going to call out to our gods. And the one that answers, that's who God is. That's the one. 
You're going to find out which God is the one who answers you today. That's what he says. Which God is worthy of your worship? So the prophets of Baal, he, he tells them, y'all go first. You go right ahead. So they get together, they get their sacrifice, they put it down on the altar, and they go crazy. They're dancing around, they're calling out to Baal, answer us, answer us. They're dancing around, they're doing all kinds of crazy worship routines, um, and, and nothing's happening. They do this from morning until noon. They start doing this at you know 9 a.m., 8 a.m., and they go until noon. They're doing this for four hours, and nothing is happening. No one is answering them. They look pathetic. Just imagine it. You ever seen a movie that, frankly, just goes on about 45 minutes too long? Like, you, you're watching it, and, and, and you're at the two-hour and 45-minute mark, and you're like, this should have ended 45 minutes ago. I don't know what we're still watching this for. That's what's going on here. People are watching these prophets of Baal do their worship routines, and after a while, it's just kind of like, Okay, guys, I don't think you're actually doing that good of a job. You need to stop. You're making a fool of yourself. So Elijah, in verse 27, starts mocking these prophets. He says, in verse 27, Cry aloud, for he is God. Either he's musing himself, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and you need to wake him up. I mean, think about it. These prophets are doing all this stuff, and Elijah comes up, and he's like, all right, where's your God at? Oh, I bet I know. I bet he's watching the new episode of America's Got Talent. That's what he's doing. Or maybe he's in the bathroom. Just give him a little bit. He'll be out. Or, oh, he's probably on vacation. He went down to Miami for the weekend. That's, that's where he's at. You just got to wait till he gets back, and then maybe he'll answer you. Or... Uh, he's probably taking a nap after a long day of work, and you, you need to go wake him up. Wake him up so he can come out here and, and, and receive your offering. He's making fun of him. He's like, look at you. You look stupid. And they keep going. Nothing's happened from morning until noon, so they keep going. They... Uh, verse 29, as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. The offering of the oblation would take place in the evening. So they're doing this all day. They're having an all-day church service to a God who is not answering them at all. They keep doing this. They're, they're doing everything they can to get this God to answer, and he's not answering them. In the evening, they start doing some crazy stuff. Look at verse 28. They start cutting themselves, like, God, please answer us. And they're just chopping themselves to pieces with a sword. These people are crazy. This goes on until evening. In verse 29, the end of it, just, a, just the, the sad reality of these people. There was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention to them. They prayed and no one answered. They danced. Nothing happened. They cut themselves, and still that didn't do anything. Do we ever do that? 
understand. There's not many people in America who necessarily bow down to a statue. No, no one watching this probably regularly bows down to a statue of anything. But there's plenty of gods that are worshipped by Americans. Perhaps this pandemic and quarantine has exposed some of those in your life, in my life, and in the lives of people around us. We're, we're always tempted to worship other gods other than the Lord. Theologians have typically divided the gods of our culture into three categories. Um, the, those are, um, we worship gods of pleasure, we worship gods of power, and we worship gods of love. First, we worship gods of pleasure. When we worship pleasure, we always end up in pain. You know, think about we worship food. You know, the way we turn to, to comfort food to cope. The way we turn to alcohol to numb the pain. We, we, we're trying to make that food do the, the things that only God can do. No amount of food you eat can really comfort you. No, no amount of alcohol you drink is ever going to completely do away with your pain. Only God can do those things. Your food will never provide that. Or the way we worship sex. The way that our culture believes that, that the excitement of sex is truly going to last forever, and it doesn't. It doesn't. Those who worship at the altar of sex are so empty. They always need more. They always need another pornographic image. They always need another hit of their drug. They always need more and more and more because the second their drug is taken away from them, they're no longer satisfied and they have to go looking for more. That's what happens when you worship the God of sex. Or the way we worship entertainment. You know, things like movies, music, sports. Understand, we're made to worship glory. God created us to worship Him. He's the ultimate glory. We are created to worship glory, and we will often worship lesser glories than God. Many of, many of us can't see a greater glory than an awesome touchdown. Many of us can't see a greater glory than an epic movie or an awesome music guitar solo. Like, many of us can't see beyond that. Honestly, most of us can't see past wasting hours of our day scrolling on Facebook. That's the highest we can get in, in gazing at glory. Uh, writer, uh, Christian writer C.S. Lewis um, from the 1950s said, um, what, probably my favorite quote from him, he said, We are like a child who is content playing in the mud because he can't imagine a vacation at the beach. It's not the exact quote that he said, but that's the idea. Often we worship glory like a child playing in mud when we're offered a vacation at the beach. That, that we, are, we are good to make, we're, we're good to sit here and, and play with mud when we could be on vacation at the beach, we are far too easily pleased, C.S. Lewis says. We worship the God of pleasure. We also worship the God of power. We worship money. We think money is truly going to make us happy. If we had, 
if we could just hit the lottery, man, we'd be set. If we just had the, uh, a certain dollar amount, man, we'd be satisfied. If we could just buy all the things we want, then we'd be satisfied. And no, you wouldn't. We worship success. How high up the, up the corporate ladder can I climb? How successful can I be? How famous can my name be made on the internet? How big of a YouTube star can I be? We, we worship those things, but there's not enough money or power or success out there to satisfy you. It's why celebrities are never satisfied. It's why the most famous people in the world are often some of the most broken people in the world. There's not enough money or power out there to satisfy you. There's not enough promotions out there to satisfy you. There's not enough college acceptance letters to satisfy you. There's not enough sports trophies to satisfy you. You always want more. Because even if you got it all, even if you got everything, you would then have to ask the question, now what do I do with my life? I got everything I ever dreamed for, and it wasn't enough. Now what do I do? We worship the God of pleasure, we worship the God of power, and we worship the God of love. That might be romance. You know, we watch all the princess movies and we think our love life should be exactly like that. We watch all the Hallmark movies and think our love should be exactly like that. Or, and, and, and you know, the, the husband or the wife doesn't measure up to that hunker or attractive lady on a Hallmark movie. They're not the perfect little angel that the Hallmark movie puts them out to be. Or we might worship family the way we have a sentimental view of our family where everything's perfect and anytime a problem occurs in our family, we can't fit that into our worldview and we just pretend like it's not there. If we pretend like it's not there, maybe it'll go away. It's attacking my God, my family. Or we, we do this in the way we, we, we are willing to neglect the Lord for our family. When the only way we can ever truly love the Lord, the only way we can ever truly love our family is to love the Lord first and foremost. We do this in the way we put unrealistic expectations on our spouse, on our parents, or on our children, and they will always let us down in those expectations. Those expectations put untold pressure on them to measure up, and they don't. They never will. They will let you down. We do this in the way that we let how things are going in our family relationships determine our joy and happiness. Where if things are not going perfect with our parents or with our kids or with our siblings, we just live in depression. We just sulk. We just live there and that's the only thing we think about and we can't get out of it because we're worshiping our family. Or we worship me, not me, the pastor, me, like, like you. You worship yourself. That's the biggest God of them all for most of us. All these other gods I've mentioned fit into that, uh, me. We worship ourselves more than anything. Looking, we're always looking out for ourselves. Whether we are two years old and we say, that's my toy. Or whether we are 80 years old and we say, hey, kids, get off my lawn. That's my lawn. Or if we're 45 years old and we are driving down the road and someone's in our way driving too slow and we say, this moron needs to get off the road. 
We're worshiping ourselves because we think we own that road. We're the God of this world and people need to get out of our way. And we are terrible gods. We are not the gracious Lord of the Bible at all, are we? A lot of these things that I've said that we worship are very good things. In fact, the greater something is, the more likely we are to worship it. We are made to worship. We will worship something. We have a throne in our heart, and we don't necessarily go into our room and bow down and pray, oh, great promotion that I so long for. We don't necessarily do that, but we give our lives to that. A, a husband goes to work early. He works all day. Then he comes home and he keeps working. He misses all of his kids' ball games because he's working. He doesn't lead his family to church because he's working. He, he's always absent, even from his wife when she's talking to him, because all he's thinking about is work. And he'll say, you know, I'm thinking about my family's future. No, you're not. You're worshiping. You're worshiping your job. That promotion you're so longing for, you're worshiping it. That 401k that you're building, you're worshiping it. That six-digit salary that you either have or you want, you're worshiping it. You're supposedly working for the future of your family, but you completely ignore the present of your family. You, you, your kids had a growth spurt, grew a foot, and you didn't even notice because you're worshiping your job. It's a worship problem. That's the reality of our problems. It's not something noble, oh, I'm thinking about my future. No, it's we are worshiping. We have put whatever it is on the throne of our heart. And these are just fruits of that worship. Think to yourself, what do you give all your time, energy, and money to? That, that might be your God. When you're alone, what does your mind naturally go to thinking about? Because that's probably your God. What does your day consist of? Because that may expose what your God is. A lot of people say, I love Jesus, but the worship they give with their life shows they actually love money or sex or their kids or their job. What do you worship? What do you call out to from morning until noon, hoping it will answer you? What do you dance around the altar of your life, hoping it will notice? What do you do dramatic, insane things like cutting yourself for, hoping it will satisfy you? What is it? You, you seek satisfaction from what you worship. You seek purpose, and you seek your thirst to be quenched. Has it ever actually delivered? Has your money ever actually delivered you? Has sex ever actually given you lasting joy? Has romance ever actually satisfied you eternally? Has the Georgia Bulldogs ever truly delivered you? Have, has the Republican Party ever truly satisfied you? Has Netflix ever truly given you joy? Has comfort eating or alcohol or, or your good hair day or your job or playing five different sports in school or a promotion or vacation or the beach or fine dining has any of this stuff actually ever satisfied you has it ever actually delivered you what has it actually done for you it's like bail 
There was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. The gods that you worship are not paying attention to you. If you're honest, none of them have ever answered you. The false gods you worship will let you down at some point. Probably one of the reasons I'm not a sports fan is is when my dad was younger, he was a big Kentucky Wildcats fan. And he's told me a story of one time he went up to Lexington, Kentucky, and he got into one of their practices, and he took a camera, and he was taking pictures of them. And afterwards, he, they, they were leaving practice, and he went after them to get an autograph, and they ran from him. My dad has told me that he, he was a fanatic of the UK Wildcats, and it ended that night because they let him down. And I just didn't grow up in a home that that liked sports that much because of that. The false gods you worship will let you down at some point. All of them. What about the true God? Next part of the story. 1 Kings 18, starting verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar. Pay attention to what he's doing here. He, he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two saves of seed. And he put the wood in order, cut the bowl in pieces, and laid it on the wood. He He said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. They did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. They did it a third time. And the water ran on the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at that time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their face and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Finally, after a full day of work, the prophets of Baal give up. They walk off the stage with their shoulders slumped in defeat. And Elijah tells everyone, hey, come here. I want to show you something. It's the evening at this point. The sun's down. There's a sunset in the background. He rebuilds the altar of the Lord. He marks it with Israel. He puts 12 stones to remind them this is Israel's altar. This is the altar of the God of Israel. He builds a trench around it. He builds it. He cuts the bull into pieces. And then he drenches the altar in water. He fills four jars up, covers the altar, does it a second time, does it a third time. This thing is so wet of firewood, there's no way any fire is going to burn on this thing. He offers one prayer to God. Lord, accept this offering. 
show yourself. And fire falls, consumes the burnt offering, turns everything to ash, and licks up all the water. The one true God shows his power exponentially. He answers. And everyone falls on their face and declares that the Lord is God. Everyone falls on their face and worships. Elijah has these prophets, the 450 prophets of Baal. It doesn't say whether he did it with the prophets of Asherah as well, but he has all of them seized and he slaughters them. That might shock you. The prophet of the Lord slaughters them. Why does he slaughter these prophets? Why doesn't he convert them? Well, it was a different time. It was Old Covenant. We're in the New Covenant. So, but it's a question we should ask. Should we slaughter people of other religions? Because that's a, that's a question raised from this passage. Should we slaughter people of other religions? Is that how we should treat Islamic people and Hindus and Buddhists and, and all of them? Is that what we should do? Elijah does it here. There was a point in Christian history when, when the Catholic Church uh, made holy war against Islam, went in and slaughtered a bunch of Muslims. Should we do this sort of thing? No. No, the Catholic Church was wrong to do that. This is a different time. This was during the Old Covenant. We're now in the New Covenant. We're in a different time in biblical history. Jesus comes in and he changes the way we relate to people of other faiths. We, we want them to worship Jesus. We want them to have salvation in his name. Is that how you view people of other religions? I see some of your Facebooks. Many of you hate Islamic people. Because the only thing you know about them is 9-11. The only thing you know about them is Al-Qaeda. The only thing you know about them is terrorism. You don't actually know an Islamic person. When someone is a vague group of people, it's easy to hate them. It's easy to want them run out of our country. It's easy to want them destroyed. But when you know someone in that group, it changes things. I knew a lot of Muslim people in college. We, we opened up the Baptist campus ministry for them to come and be able to play ping pong there. I played ping pong with, with a half a dozen Muslim guys on a regular basis. I had conversations with them about the differences in Christianity and Islam. I shared the gospel with them. I, I went with other Christian friends to eat with them. Not one of them ever tried to kill me or blow me up. Like, none of them ever lit a stick of dynamite and stuck it in my back pocket so I'd be blown to smithereens. It never happened. There are certainly Islamic terrorists, but look in Christian history, there's been Christian terrorists a lot. We, we want Muslim people to come to know Jesus. We want them to come to know Jesus. We don't want to destroy them. That's the Lord's job one day. Right now, our job is to, is to see them come to know Jesus. We want them to know the truth and to love the truth. Let that fuel how you treat Muslim people. But more likely here in Tifton, you're not going to run into a Muslim person. You're going to run into a Hindu person. 
Many of you know there's a Hindu temple on Widden Mill Road. It used to be New Covenant Church. It's now a Hindu temple. When you drive past that temple, do you look at that and think, those are some weird people. Ugh. Or do you see that temple and think, Lord, would you bring them to salvation? Would you bring them to know the Lord? Use me in whatever way you need me to, to, to work, but, but bring those people to know your son. Which is your attitude about that temple? How about, how about let me challenge you with something, and I'm going to challenge myself with this as well. Every time you pass that Hindu temple on Widden Mill Road, how about you offer up a prayer Every time you pass that temple, Lord, save those people. Bring them to knowledge of your son. Use me if necessary. And, and just see how that's going to change them and how that'll change your heart. I, I challenge you to that. Jesus is the only God worthy of worship. He's the only true God. He's the only real God He's the only God that answers, and He's the only God worthy of worship. He's the only one who has a voice. The, the Lord is the only God worthy of worship. He's the only one that answers us. But the crazy part is that we weren't even calling to Him. I wasn't calling to the Lord when He rescued me. I wasn't seeking Him out. I was dead in my sins. I was dead in the grave, and He came and, and got me. He came and raised me to life. That's the gospel. We were dead in our sins, and Christ invaded the world through a virgin birth, through a sinless life, through a sacrificial death, and through a victorious resurrection. None of us were asking for that. He invaded the world and did it. We were dead in our sins, hopelessly on the way to hell, without any thought of him. And he invaded the story. He rose from the dead so we could be certain he was God. No other supposed God has risen from the dead. Christ stands risen from the grave, declaring to the whole world that he is the Lord, he is God. And one day he will descend from heaven with a shout, a shout that the Lord, he is God. He alone is God. He alone is worthy of worship. He is worthy, worthy, worthy. Nothing else that you worship is worthy. Nothing else has glory. He is the only one worthy of worship. As we finish up, look at the final part of chapter 18. Look at how the story here ends. Verse 41, Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of a rushing of rain. So Ahab went up and to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. He bowed himself down to the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. He said, go again, seven times. At the seventh time, he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariots, go down, lest the rain stop you. It's about to rain, and you haven't seen that in three years. You, you forgot how to drive in it. And in a little while, when the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, there was a great rain, and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, 
And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Just to put the nail in the coffin against Baal, Elijah tells Ahab, go eat and drink, rain's coming. He sends his servant up, check out the storm. He does it seven times. Understand seven in the Bible is not the number of perfection. It's the number of completion. The thing is complete. The drought is complete. The defeat of the prophets of Baal is complete. Baal's defeated. The rain God could not bring rain. The Lord is the God of heavens and he will bring rain. And the final act against Baal is to cause it to rain. It has not rained in three and a half years, and it finally does. The drought is over. The rain drought and the spiritual drought. The, the God of rain is kicked out of Israel. The Lord has put Baal and his phony religion to shame. Elijah runs to get to Jezreel before Ahab does, because they're going to come after him for shaming him, for, for shaming them. And, and we'll see that next week in the story in chapter 19. Read chapter 19 for next week. Friend, I don't know where you are tempted to put, I don't know what you're tempted to put on the throne of your heart every day of your life. Maybe it's some kind of pleasure. Maybe it's a desire and quest for power. Maybe it's love. But I hope you see that it cannot satisfy you. That they have no voice. And they don't care about your well-being. They are terrible gods. But the Lord is the only God. He is worthy of our worship. He has a voice. He speaks and he acts. And he takes notice of you. If you don't believe that, if you don't believe in the Lord, I invite you to look at another mountain, another hill. It's called Golgotha. On that day, on Golgotha, the Lord God had a showdown against all the gods of this world. And though it looked like death had taken him, he stepped out of the grave three days later. It's what we celebrated last Sunday. All those gods are left defeated in the dirt. Your sin was too. Your propensity to worship false gods was left in the dirt. And now he is beckoning you to come believe in him and worship him for the rest of eternity. Will you come? I'm going to pray in just a minute. I invite you to cast your false gods aside and come running to the only God. Let's pray. Father, you are worthy. You are worthy of all worship. You are worthy of all praise. No other God in this world deserves any kind of glory. You deserve all glory and honor and praise forever. Lord, we worship you this morning. I pray for myself, that you would expose any idols in my own heart and that I would cast them down. And I pray that you alone would be on the throne of my heart. I pray for those listening, watching this who don't know you who are currently worshiping their sin, I pray that you would call out to them, that they would hear your name, that, that they would hear your voice, and that they would come running to you out of the grave of their sin, that they would be raised to new life. Lord, I pray that you would bring people to know you watching this right now. And Lord, I pray for those who do know you, 
who are watching this. Lord, I pray that you would expose idols in their heart, things that they worship. Lord, I pray that this, that's what you're doing in this quarantine, is exposing the gods that we worship. Lord, I pray that you would expose those and give us the grace to cast them aside and worship you alone, for you are God. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you don't know Jesus, I invite you to get in contact with me. Uh, I invite you to either call the church at 229-382-1516, um, message the church here on Facebook, or go to our website, mountzionchula.org, go to contact at the top, and send a message on that. That goes straight to my email. If you don't know Jesus, I invite you to do that. Or I invite you to, um, um, if you know Jesus, but you have noticed that there's an idol in your heart that you need to know how to throw down, give me a call. Send me a message. Let's figure that out. Because those gods will not hear you, and they will not help you, and you need to get rid of them.